Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Yes, I said Revelation, chapter 1. I'm excited to be able to... She got it. She stole it from you. She got it. Revelation, chapter 1. We're excited to start a brand new series of messages today as we um, launch into the summer. We're going to be looking at this, of the passage of Revelation over the... Uh, entirety of the summer over the next eight weeks, and I'm excited about that. It's a sermon series I've been thinking about, uh, praying about for a long time. In fact, I looked back the other day, and this was actually on the schedule to preach about seven years ago. Crazy with the word seven. And the Lord just kept delaying. And I'm not sure why He kept delaying, but I am sure that it is, this is the series that I am to preach this summer. Now, I'll just be real honest with you, we are not getting into what most of you want to get into when we get into Revelation. We're not going to be talking about flying locusts and what they mean and all of that. We're going to focus on the first three chapters. Because the purpose of Revelation was to write to these churches. And so the title seven comes from the seven churches to whom this book was originally written. At a professor at Union when I was taking Bible courses in my college years. And he used to always say to us, we would get ready to interpret a passage, and I took Revelation with him during what they call winter term, during January, a four-week intensive study. And he said to us at the beginning of that class, one of the things that we must make sure of is that we understand that a book in the Bible, a thing written in the Bible, is absolutely true, it is absolutely right, But it cannot mean what it was never intended to mean. And what you have to understand is, what was the original intention of writing this book? And that original intention drives how we understand what Revelation means for us today. So today we're going to start with what is really the commissioning of the book, the writing of the book. And then over the next seven weeks that I'm with you, we're going to talk about a particular church. And this is where it's going to be important for us as a church. We'll talk a little bit more about the churches in just a second. But I believe that what God intends for us this summer is for us to investigate ourselves individually and as a church. And to ask the question, where are we in following the Lord's commands? Each church represents a different reaction that people and churches have to Jesus. And we're going to talk about those week by week by week. And there may be some weeks that you're like, that is not an issue that I have. But I can guarantee you, if you're here for each week that we talk about it, there will be weeks that it will penetrate To the very center of who you are. Or let me say it this way. If you can read the first three chapters of Revelation and understand what he is saying to the churches. And it doesn't convict you about where you stand with the Lord. Then you need to check the salvation that you have from the Lord. 
Because we are moving towards him, but none of us have been perfected. And he is writing this to them to say, here are some things we need you to understand. Now, some of the churches are better than other churches. Some of them are doing well. Some of them are not. Some of them are kind of in the middle. And we're going to talk through that because all of us are at different levels. But the point that I want to make is that it is a time of self-reflection for you and for us. And we're going to start today by looking at the moment, the Sunday that it all began. Now let me ask you a quick question. How many of you here have ever had a bad day? Let me see. Okay, just raise your hand. All right, good. I'm just counting. I'm counting real quick. All right. Three of you have never had a bad day. Praise be to God for you. All right. I'm glad for that. I won't name who you are, but you know who's lying out there. Okay, so... We've all had bad days, right? Now, there's a difference between a bad day and a bad day, right? Like, there are variations of that. How many of you ever had a bad day, right? I remember a few years ago, it was one of those days that I was really excited about. Um, I don't remember fully what was surrounding it, but we were going to celebrate something. And I had been to the store and gotten some good ribeye steaks. And we were going to grill them on the grill outside and enjoy that. And when... It came about that time to get the grill ready. We had one of those afternoon pop-up thunderstorms that turned into a night of thunderstorms. And I couldn't cook them, and I'd already had them out. And so I was like, well, we're going to have steak tonight. And so I looked up Alton Brown. I don't know if you know who that is. The Food Network guys, cast iron skillet in the oven, preheated Ready to go steak, foolproof steak recipe, and I got all that. And you put it, you put the cast iron in the oven, preheat it to 500 to get that cast iron nice and hot. You make sure you put it on the stove to get it hot. Then you put the steaks in, you sear them, you put them in at 500, you cook them, you know, however long on both sides, pull them out. It's supposed to be perfect. We were doing all that, doing great. And Tom came to pull them out. I reached in for some reason with my left hand and grabbed it and did not have a glove on. Now, I don't know if any of you here have ever grabbed a 500-degree cast iron skillet. It's not advisable. Don't do that, all right? Do you know what I have not done since then? Grabbed a 500-degree cast iron skillet without a glove on. And so I grabbed it, and immediately, right, like whelps and stuff, I don't know where some of the fluid came from that ended up in those places, had it all over, washed the hand, several, that momentary decision cost me several days of use of my left hand. That was a really bad day. We're going to talk about a guy today who is coming off of what could possibly be one of the worst days in history. The guy that wrote the book of Revelation is a guy named John. You may have heard of him. He's one of the disciples of Jesus. In fact, he's one of the inner three. In fact, he is the lone disciple that we know stood at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified because he told John to take care of his mother in that moment. John is the last living apostle at this point. That's because all the other apostles have been martyred, have been killed for their faith. And it's not because John has escaped persecution. In fact, on this day that we're going to talk about, this Sunday that he is receiving this vision, John is coming off of what, now this is not biblically told, but what is traditionally told and written just a few days or weeks earlier, had been an attempt by the Romans to boil him alive in hot oil. I don't know where your bad days rate on a scale, but attempted to be boiled alive in hot oil is pretty high on the bad day scale. Can I get an amen? I know that's a weird thing to amen, but do it anyways, all right? 
Like that's bad, right? And when it did not do anything to him, they decided to get rid of him. And that's where we pick up in chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here's the scene. John is on Patmos. Now, we're not exactly sure where he is on Patmos. Um, We know from what we've read in history that Patmos was used by the Romans as a prison island, if you will. Now, I don't know if that actually means that there were lots of prisons. He could have been just out on a rocky island cleft that they just put him there to let him live there because he wouldn't uh, uh, worry too many people. John had been preaching the gospel for years, had been effective in preaching the gospel for years. They tried to kill him by burning him in oil. That didn't work. They said, let's just put him on a remote island where nobody can be converted by him. And so they put him there. He may have been in a jail cell or he may have been there alone, but we know that he's there for a specific reason. And that specific reason on this secluded prison camp, rocky terrain island, similar to what we think about as Alcatraz in our day, or at least what Alcatraz was at one time. He's there, it says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, that's not just simply because there is a word of God or that there is a testimony about Jesus. That's because of his preaching the word of God and his gave his testimony of Jesus. So we have a specific reason that he's on Patmos. It's not just a tourist destination. It's not, he thought, it's time for a little prison ministry. He is there because he was being ostracized for his faith. We get that even a little bit more because he talks about the fact that he is partners with them in affliction, in the kingdom, and in endurance, in Jesus. That because of Jesus, his life has been put on hold. He's on a prison island, separated from his family, separated from his friends, separated from the churches he cares about. After being physically tortured, we know that he was beaten. We know that he was whipped. We know that he was attempted to be killed multiple times. None of that had taken. And so here he is on the island by himself, apparently. Now, we have to understand the time frame in which this is occurring. There is white, hot persecution happening of the church all around. The Caesar at this time, the ruler at this time, is a guy named Domitian. You may have heard of the guy that was before him, a guy named Nero. Nero had blamed Christians for everything bad that happened in Rome. And Domitian came after him, and most people think Domitian was worse than Nero. He was promiscuous with other people's wives openly. His brother became ill one time, and it was a serious illness, and he commanded everyone in his command to leave him alone and let him die without offering him any assistance. Even though he was promiscuous, he called someone being promiscuous that was a part of his group and had them, the girl, buried alive and all of the men beaten to death with rods. Somebody made fun of him one time. His appearance, we'll talk about in a minute, wasn't great. And because of that, he decided to kill him. He seduced his niece and then she died getting rid of the baby because he forced her to. 
This is what somebody wrote about this leader. Domitian was a moral catastrophe of a man. He was a man who was unimpressive physically. He was bald with a flustering, bloody wart on his forehead. Those are words you never want to put together. Festering, bloody wart on his forehead. He had a protruding belly and spindly legs. And he overcompensated with his physical appearance by being domineering and forcing people to call him Dominus et Deus, Lord and God Domitian. And anyone that dared not declare him as Lord and God would be killed. That's a problem when you're a Christian, right? Because we have one Lord and God, and it is not Domitian. And so because of that, Christians were fearful for their lives. The churches that we're going to talk about in just a moment, to which this is written, most people think that John would have had some part, at, if at the least had been in those churches, probably more likely that he was kind of an overseer for the entire network of those churches. They were passionately involved with John's ministry, and John has now been exiled. They are under threat of persecution, and they wonder what is going on. That's the setting. Verse 10 tells us what John was doing. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. There's a couple of interesting just phrases there. In the Spirit... uh, has lots of different kind of meanings in the Bible. Most people think that this is some sort of place where he is worshiping the Lord and he is caught up in the worship to the point that everything else in his life has faded away to that focus has become singular and that he is worshiping the Lord completely. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. Saying, write on a scroll what you see, send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He's worshiping the Lord. He's looking for an answer. My thoughts are that this Lord's Day, which would have been Sunday, so a day similar to this, he is going through the motions, if you will, and I don't mean that in a bad way, of doing a worship service by himself, secluded, excluded, thinking about the churches that he is not able to be a part of. The people that he is concerned about that are under persecution. And my guess is he has gone to the Lord that day looking for an answer to the issues of his heart, but he starts with worship. And he heard this voice behind him like a trumpet. That just means it's strong. It's loud. It didn't need amplification. It was not something you could mistake. By the way, most people think by this time John is somewhere in his 80s or 90s or even pushing 100. He would have lived an exceptionally long life in a place where the life expectancy was somewhere in the 45 to 50 year range. And as he's there, this wizened, older man, he gets a commission to write. These seven churches would have all been what is now Turkey and Asia. They would have been a mail route, literally. They are listed in the order of way that they would do deliveries. It also would have been the order in which a circuit rider, that's a phrase from a hundred years ago, a couple hundred years ago, of preachers that would go from church to church to church, 
preaching. They would ride the circuit to preach. They would have been a similar thing for them. They would have known about each other. They would have passed this letter on one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. I think it's interesting that as they read this letter, they're going to read how the other churches are doing. They're going to see the same kind of things that are there. And so there was a specific word for them, but there's also words for all of us in every church because they all would have seen it. Now, they could have chosen to skip and say, we don't need to worry about, you know, Ephesus. We don't need to worry about Thyatira. We're just going to worry about us. But we all know churches. They were going to read it. And this is what he saw. I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. It's an Old Testament illusion, Old Testament symbolism. The seven lampstands represented God's people. There's three or four different places that they're described. There's when they built the original tabernacle. There's a description in the temple. There's in Zechariah. And all of those, though, there aren't separate, separate, uh, seven separate lampstands. They're one lampstand with seven branches. In this particular one, there were seven lampstands. We won't be able to get in tons of symbolism as we go through this, but part of what I believe here is he's saying that he, these are the people of God, the seven churches represent the people of God, the seven lampstands represent the churches. Now in that Zechariah prophecy, there's this interesting thing that happens where among the lampstands there were two individuals, a prophet and a priest, and that they were kind of guiding the whole thing. And so a lot of people thought two messiahs would come, one prophet, one priest, the two witnesses kind of idea. But when we get here to this vision, among the lampstand was one, Jesus, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. He is both king and prophet and priest. The hair of his head was white wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze, and it is fired in furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. There's all kinds of symbolism in there, but it's basic stuff that we understand. The white hair was a symbol of wisdom in their society. The eyes of fire mean penetrating vision, not x-ray vision, but that he can see to the heart, that he has the vision to know all. The voice of power like cascading waters that you cannot hear around because the voice and the power is so much. The sword that is coming out, it's not just that he speaks words loudly and powerfully, but they are pointed and direct. This is a double-edged sword that is going to cut to the very heart of the matter. And his face was shining everywhere in Scripture where people's faces are shining with glory, with weight, with honor. It symbolizes the goodness and the greatness and the mighty God that we serve in his full holiness. We don't have any record that John had seen Jesus since after the ascension. Jesus ascends. Remember that in Acts chapter 1. He's talking to them and then they look up and he's flying away. His body changed when he was resurrected from the grave. But his body was still human-like enough that they recognized him. 
What we're going to see in the next verse is Jesus here decided not to hold back on who he is before John. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come. It says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. The word literally there is to bow low or hit your knees or get on your face before the Lord. And he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is and will take place after this. And then he gives us some interpretation, which is helpful. It would have been helpful through the rest of Revelation if they had done this a little bit. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now we're going to get into that a little bit more in the weeks ahead because we're going to talk about each of the churches and the lampstands and all that is happening there. But I just want you to think for a moment and we're going to talk about three things that come out of this that we need to do. Think for a moment about this image that he gets of Jesus. He says that when he saw him, he fell dead or like dead at his feet. Let me ask you a quick question. Who's writing this again? Who's the one writing this? John. How well did John know Jesus? Really well, right? So Jesus had 12 that he called out from the rest. He had hundreds, thousands that would follow. He had 12 that he called out from the rest. He had three from that inner circle. From that 12, he had three, Peter, James, and John, that he called further into himself. And Peter was kind of the vocal leader, but John was the one who called himself the one whom Jesus loved. And the Lord's Supper, when they're gathered at the Lord's Supper, it says that John, so, so if you remember the way they would have done that, is they would have had a, a table that would have been low, and they would have laid on an elbow and eaten, probably laid on their left hand and eaten with their right. And it says in the description of the Lord's Supper that John laid his head against the chest of Jesus. Now, I got a lot of good guy friends that I, you know, the people in this church. But that's not necessarily the way we would interact. I would interact that way and did when they were young with my sons, with my family. John and Jesus, the relationship best described by them is big brother and little brother. Now, Jesus would describe all of us as his co-heirs and his brothers, but in this particular term, they were very close. And John, upon seeing Jesus for the first time since the ascension, did not say, can I give you a hug, bro? Dab it up, man. High five. He falls at his feet because he get a glimpse of who Jesus really Yes. I wonder what this moment was like for John. 
Because it's in this moment that he realizes the strength and the power and the glory of Jesus. When I was growing up, uh, I went to First Baptist Church in Dyersburg, Tennessee. Um, and I remember in our third grade Sunday school room, there was this picture of Jesus. And my guess is if you grew up in a southern church, you've seen the same picture of Jesus. It was the flowing hair. was looked just the calmest expression on his face. And I always thought of a Jesus meek and mild, right? And there is a sense in Scripture where it talks about his heart being gentle and lowly, meek and mild. That there is that aspect. He humbled himself. But one of the things that we often forget when we see him as meek and mild is that we don't recognize him as the conquering hero, the Almighty God. And one of the things that we have to come into understanding is that sometimes we play around with the things of church and the things of Jesus and the things of following him in our Christian life like he's a friendly neighborhood deity. And he is God almighty, holy and powerful, right and true. The first and the last, the alpha and the omega whose voice is like the cascading waters with the sword that splits to the very essence of who we are coming out of his mouth with a glow on his face, standing firm in who he is with bronzed feet. And what I love about this is when you see a vision of who he is and he asks you to do something, you do. He said, John, right. And we have the rest of revelation as is writing. I just pulled three things out of this passage before next week. We really start diving into what is this church? What were the issues of this church? What does this mean for this church? What are the good things there? What are the bad things? How does this relate to us? Three things for us to think about as we walk through all of this that are essentials to following Christ. And the first thing is this. He calls us to endure. And I just want to be real honest to you, as comfortable American Christians, endurance is not our best attribute. There's an old saying, right? When the going gets tough, we quit. Or we go a different direction. Or we try something easier. I saw a quote this week that said about our culture that we live in, that we live in an absolutely self-absorbed, narcissistic, consumer culture of immediate gratification. Which is why we see so many people with addictions and debts and impatience and compulsions. And the first thing that we see from this passage is this, that John is in the midst of enduring persecution and he is among a people that are enduring persecution. They are involved in being sentenced and beaten and killed and ostracized for their faith. And the point of revelation, if you will, there's going to be lots of points, lots of things in there. The big points of revelation are in this passage. They are that we need to endure in the midst of all the persecution, of all the trials, of all the tribulations, because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater than anything you're facing. A few years ago, we had a conference here, Union University, Hendersonville sponsored it, and we had speakers come and talk about Revelation. 
And I'll never forget that one of the speakers said that Revelation is one of the greatest political pamphlets ever written saying just because you think Domitian is in control doesn't mean he is. Our God is. And because of that, we will endure in the midst of this regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Here's what I think is absolutely amazing about this opening part is John says that I am a brother with you in persecution and in the kingdom and endurance. The reason that's amazing to me is that the wording that he has there puts him on the exact same level as to everyone else that he is writing. And there can be no debate that by the time John is writing Revelation, he is or has the claim to be the most authoritative Christian on the planet. No one is left who walked in the inner circle with Jesus but John. No one has served Jesus longer than John. No one has pastored more than John at this moment. And in the midst of that, he says, we are all in this together. And it's not some corporate slogan to make us feel better. He is saying, we're going to make it through this because of the God we serve. Now, I know sometimes speaking this in American context, when we think about the world around us, there are people that are enduring much worse than us on the mission field, in places that the gospel hasn't reached yet, in places that it has persecution is happening there because of it. And sometimes as American Christians, talking about the problems we have can seem like we are lessening their suffering. And I'm not doing that in any way. But the reality is that Americans, we need to understand that life will not be exactly as great always as we want it to be following Christ. And what I mean by that is not that Christ isn't for us or Christ isn't going to hold us. I just mean that everything's not going to go our way. And if we expect because we're following Christ for life to get easier, then we are going against what the Bible has taught us. Because in Scripture... Everyone that followed Christ post-resurrection had to deal with significant trouble. And if we expect anything less, then we somehow think that we have escaped what is the plight of followers of Jesus Christ. The problem for most of us is the stuff that we have isn't that difficult, and so we can do it on our own. At least that's what we think. We heard a quote this week that just simply said, The task that we have now is to survive that which has taken down every opponent. Success, comfort, and leisure. As believers in Jesus Christ, it is really comfortable in many ways to be followers here in America. At least we're not in any way really jeopardized, no matter what the what the scare tactics are on Facebook right now. At this moment, we're not jeopardized in any real way because of our faith. There may come that day. And when that day comes, I hope that I will stand firm and I pray that God will give me the strength to stand firm. But I know that even in my most difficult moments, it's easy to question or to wonder or to think why and to begin to slip in my faith and have a self-pity party that leads down a path of self-fulfillment. Instead of enduring. John says endure. Second thing that we see in this passage that is a major theme throughout Revelation. In fact, I have read 
papers and books on the fact that this is the theme of Revelation, and that is worship. We endure and we worship. Every time we get a glimpse into heaven, you know what's happening in Revelation? They're worshiping. They're giving praise. They're giving honor. What I think is interesting, before Jesus shows up, what is John doing? Well, it says he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I don't know how you interpret that other than he was worshiping the Lord with everything he had on a Sunday. And he was there seeking the Lord, but he's seeking the Lord in faith, doing what God has called him to do. He's worshiping the Lord. He's seeking answers. He's going after God. He's going after the goodness of God, the greatness of God. He is fully in tune to what is happening there. He's not letting the circumstances of his life determine whether or not he is comfortable enough to worship the Lord. He is worshiping the Lord. And then when he gets a glimpse of who Jesus is, how does he respond in that moment? He gets on his face and worships the Lord. In his glory, he worships. He falls on his face. The posture of his life is complete surrender. It's similar to me to what happens in Isaiah. John comes seeking answers to what's happening in his life. And instead of all the answers, he gets Jesus. Maybe I'll rephrase that. He gets Jesus as all the answers. Remember in Isaiah when King Uzziah died and he goes to the temple and I believe that's a moment of, God, where do we go from here? How do we move on from this relationship that was held with the king and the people? How do we get leadership that's going to drive us towards you? And he walks into the temple and he doesn't get a list of answers. He gets a vision of God. High and lifted up, seated on the throne, with a train of his realm filling the temple. John is there worshiping. And we don't know what answers he's seeking. We don't know what's going on. We know that he had had difficult circumstances. Maybe he's just there praising the Lord. Maybe he's just there giving thanks to God in the midst of it all. But there in the midst of it, he gets a vision of God. A vision of his friend Jesus fully revealed. I think it's interesting because one of the ways that you can think about the book of Revelation is the word revelation literally means unveiling. Like we know that, right? That was revealed to us, but we don't necessarily put those together. It's an unveiling of truth, an unveiling of what's happening. There are different people that interpret it in different ways. It's the unveiling of what is to come. It's the unveiling of what the church has needed to know. But one aspect that happens in the book of Revelation for sure is it is the unveiling of who Jesus Christ is. The one who is able to open the scroll. The one who is, the one who was, the one that is to come. John in this moment gets a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ and he worships. Sometimes it amazes me what people will say out loud in churches or to leadership or to people about what prevents them from worshiping. Temperature. Comfort of the pews, musical style. We're not worshiping any of that. If the comfort of the pews is preventing you from worshiping Jesus, the problem is not with the pews. If the temperature in the room is preventing you from worshiping Jesus, the problem is not the temperature in the room. 
Now, the problem with a particular musical style, if the words are glorifying and edifying to Christ and challenging to us about who he is, if the musical style is preventing you from worship, the problem is not the style. Because when you get a vision of who Jesus Christ is, nothing prevents you from worship. I probably need to move on. Next thing. Last thing. And this is a strange thing here because I don't think you would expect to find this here. But this is what he says. Endure, worship, and serve the church. I think this is interesting that John has been attempted to be boiled in oil. He is now um, on an island of prisoners by himself. And Jesus doesn't give him any comfort about what that's happening there or any answers about what's happening with him. He says, I need you to serve the church and write a letter to them right now. The call is to write to the churches. And here's the reason for that. And throughout Revelation, we see this. This message is for the churches because what God loves. Yes, God loves you individually. God absolutely loves every single person on this planet. But God, when he talks about his bride, is talking about his church. Now, that's the global church, but as is expressed in a local body of believers of churches. And the call on John here in the only way that he currently can because he is ostracized on this prison island is to write encouragement to them about what is to happen. And this is the way he's going to serve the church in this particular moment in history. He's going to tell them, I know that it feels like Domitian is ruling with an iron fist and that any moment your life may be taken from you. But take heart and courage because Jesus is greater. And one day Domitian is going to fall, but Jesus was and is and is to come. One day Domitian will no longer be in rule, but Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. And one day the Roman Empire is going to fall, but the kingdom of God stands forever. And his encouragement is to the church to keep enduring, to keep worshiping, to keep serving, to keep ministering, to keep spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, because in the end we win. The story of Revelation is in the midst of worshiping the one who is the conquering hero of all. We recognize that we win. And because of that, we can live faithfully today in the midst of it. And that plays out through a local church. In other ways, he might say it is love the church, serve the church, lift up the church, do your part for the church. And if you're listening to me today, you're here in service, you're online, and this is the place that you call your church home. This is where God has led you to be as a part of this faith family then it is your responsibility to love this church, to serve this church, to lift up this church, to do what God has called you to do in this church. Because God loves it. And He loves us. We are His bride. And the moment you criticize or try to bring down or try to cause division, you are messing with the bride of Christ.
And far too many people have treated church as another club membership that they can be a part of and not worry about it. And they can say whatever they wanted to say or do or cause some division or do some or do some um, backroom scheming or thoughts or say this or say that or gossip or prayer request people. And when you do that, you're doing it to God's bride, to the bride of Christ. Serve the church. Love the church. Uplift the church. It's the calling on our lives. And when we are people who are enduring in the midst of whatever is coming our way, and we lift high the name of Jesus in this place, and we serve with the way he's called us to serve, God will be glorified in the midst of what we're doing. And that is our ultimate goal. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at seven churches and ask ourselves the question, what do we see good from that in us? And where are we needing to be challenged? And where do we need to repent? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment that your will would be done. Lord, as we pray about serving you, following you, worshiping you, Lord, that you would remind us of the glory of who you are. And Lord, that you would give us a vision of how we need to respond. Lord, I pray that all across this room there would be people that this week, tonight, we get on their faces before you and confess some things going on. Ask for your forgiveness and ask to find a way to serve. And in the midst of it, Lord, that your name is the name that has made great. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.